previous lecture, we introduced the idea of a balance sheet or statement of condition for the company. And we said that one side, the left-hand side typically, lists the assets, the things the company owns. In this session, we're going to talk about where the money came from to buy those assets. There are really just two sources of funds available to a company. It can either borrow the money from someone or convince people to invest in the equity or the shares of the business. We're going to be looking at where the money comes from, how long we get to use it, and a few other questions in this session. Our concern with how long we get to use it is important because one of the problems that we have is to match the length of the source of funds, that is the amount of time we can use it, to the asset that we're going to buy. It wouldn't make much sense to borrow for three months to buy a house that it's going to take us 20 years to pay for. Similarly, if we're only going to buy some inventory that has a two-month life, no one is going to loan us money for 30 years to buy that inventory. So matching the source of funds and the life expectancy or the usage of those funds to the life expectancy of the asset is an important part of putting together a balance sheet. Again, we're going to list the sources of funds in order of liquidity. That is, how soon do we have to give them back if we ever have to give them back? And therefore, we'll talk first about a group of liabilities or debts called current liabilities, those that we have to give back in less than a year. And then we'll talk about long-term debt and equity, things that, that we have longer uh, to use. The sources of funds for a company, then, are either borrowed money or equity. Borrowed money can also be called liabilities, and you'll see that on, on a uh, income statement or balance sheet, rather. And in fact, in the XYZ balance sheet, which again I'll be referring to throughout this session, you'll notice that they're called liabilities. Well, where can a company borrow money? It seems to me that the place to look first is where it's cheapest, and so I'm looking at it right now. You managers loan money to companies all the time. Very few of you, if any, get paid before you do your work. If you get paid once a month, on average, you've been loaning the use of your work to the company for 15 days before you get paid. Some of your work you did a whole month before you got paid for it. Some of it just one day, but on average, some 15 days from the day you do your work until the day you get paid. Now, blue-collar workers are generally smarter than you guys. They get paid once a week, which means they're only willing to give credit to the company without getting interest for it for three and a half days. However, don't feel too bad. Victorian England used to pay its, its household servants once a year whether they deserved it or not. However, they were living in, so what did they really need money for? They'd only squandered on something useful like liquor. So, okay, we'll be looking at first wages and salaries payable. Now, as I said, you're a cheap source of funds. Essentially, we don't pay you for the use of your services until later, and we don't pay any interest for waiting. However, I think it should be clear that if you had to wait long enough, you'd find the job unattractive and either demand more pay or alternatively not take the job. So there is something built into your salary that takes into account the fact that you're waiting, but we really don't know what it is. Where else can we borrow money? Well, another good source is our suppliers. Suppliers and vendors sell us goods and they put on their balance sheet an item called an accounts receivable, which we discussed earlier. That's money owed to them by us. Incidentally, their account receivable is our account payable. And so we will list a group of items called accounts payable, monies that we owe to somebody else, and they will appear on somebody else's balance sheet as their accounts receivable. And of course, the slower we can pay, the better, 
Although trying to maintain good vendor relationships, generally you don't want to bankrupt your, your suppliers. So you usually have to pay sooner or later. And they'll try to encourage you to pay sooner by offering you discounts. I alluded to that when we talked about our accounts receivable. One way to reduce the number of days of receivables is to offer a discount if people will pay sooner. Typical terms are things like 210 net 30. 210 net 30 means we'll give you a 2% discount if you pay within 10 days, but in any event, all of it's due in 30 days. If you think about it, what we're really saying is if you'll pay 20 days early, that is pay on the 10th day rather than the 30th day, we'll give you a 2% discount. That's a rather nice rate of return if you think about it. There are 18 20 or 10 day periods in a year, 20 day periods in a year in the 360 day accounting year. 18 periods, if you earn 2% on every one of them, you'd be getting a 36% return. In fact, compounded, it's about a 43% annual return, which is better than most companies do on investments. So in general, most companies will take the benefit of the discount, and that is they'll pay early. The problem you have in offering discounts, and it's the same thing we intend to do with our suppliers if we can get away with it, is that a very big company will pay after 30 days and still take the 2% discount and figure that it won't be worth it for the bad feelings for the vendor to come chasing and asking for the 2% you didn't send them. So we buy something for $100, and at the end of 30 days, we send them a check for 98. We should, of course, pay, have paid them a full 100. We could have given them 98 if we had paid in 10 days, but we paid in 30 and we still took the discount. What are they going to do, sue us or what? In general, they let us get away with it if we're big enough. Now, other games are played to extend payables. Uh, we only mail our payables once a month. And of course, it's always on a Friday afternoon after the last mail delivery goes out. So it'll still be postmarked, but it doesn't really leave the post office till Monday, perhaps. Uh, all sorts of games, as I said, are paid. Another thing, of course, is we certainly won't pay a payable until whatever we receive from the supplier is in perfectly good order. Agreed? So if we ordered 36 widgets and only 35 came in, we don't pay for 35 widgets. We wait till we get to 36 widget, then we send them a check for all 36 widgets after we process the check. Now, people have gotten all sorts of problems with this. I remember years ago when I was a governor of the Boston Stock Exchange, a major brokerage firm that purports to be taking care of retail customers was discovered to be writing checks on the most distant bank whenever a customer asked for money. So if a customer in San Francisco asked this brokerage firm for money, they would send that customer a check written on a New York bank which means that when that customer deposited it into his bank, it would take longer to clear than if it had been a local check. On the other hand, if a New Yorker asked for a check, he got it on a San Francisco bank. Didn't sound like much. It added about two days of float to the checks. However, this company probably was dispersing something in the order of $120 billion a year. And I leave you to calculate what the return on $120 billion is for two days. It's not bad. Everett Dirksen, the senator from Illinois, used to say a billion here, a billionaire, begins to add up to real money. And in this case, it did. It was probably the largest fine ever paid by a brokerage firm up to that point. But all of this is an effort to pay slower. And of course, if there's anything wrong with the merchandise we receive from a supplier, clearly that has to be straightened out before we can cut a check. Now, the remedy for this, if you're, if you're the supplier, is to make sure that your logistics are very straight, that everything arrives carefully packed, that it's properly counted and it meets all specifications. That is, we don't send them the three-ounce bottles when they ask for the two-ounce bottles. And all of this is an attempt on the part of the supplier to get paid more promptly, that is, to reduce his receivables 
as a contradiction to our effort to increase our payables. So we're interested not only in how many dollars worth of payables we have on the books, but how long it takes to pay. And the formula for that is shown on your screen. It's simply a comparison of how much haven't we paid at the end of the year compared to how much we've bought during the year, and that percentage of 360 are the days of payables. Let's see what XYZ looked like at the end of 1995. We go to the balance sheet on the right-hand side. At accounts payable, we find that, that they had $4 million of goods that they had purchased that they had not yet paid for. Now, unfortunately, XYZ doesn't tell us how much they purchased. One approximation of that is the cost of goods sold. It's not perfect because the cost of goods sold, besides the raw material purchases, also includes whatever labor was put into the product. But in this case, that's the best approximation we can make. And ordinarily, unless you're an insider, that's the best you'll be able to make about any company you look at. So very often for purchases, we'll substitute cost of goods sold. The cost of goods sold for the year, you'll recall from the income statement, was some $60 million. So that means 1 15th of 360 days of purchases have not been paid for, or we have about uh, 24 days of payables on the books. If I asked you whether that's good or bad, the appropriate answer, as usual, is it depends. Uh, first of all, it depends on whether other people are paying faster or slower. If we find that other competitors of ours are beginning, taking longer to pay our supplier, that gives them the advantage of their using the supplier's money for more time than we do. So having fewer days of payables on our books than our, than our competitors would lead us to believe that somebody's getting a better credit deal than we are and we ought to be renegotiating. And that's an important thing to think about as we look at all of these data. It's not just the individual manager who can gain from looking at the company's books or the individual investor. Almost every functional manager in the business has an advantage in looking at this. For example, if you were a salesperson for a company selling to XYZ, if you could, it would be very interesting for you to know what XYZ's payables are because that tells you on average how long XYZ is getting from its suppliers to pay them. So if the XYZ purchasing agent says, well, our people normally, or our suppliers normally give us 50 days to pay, and we do our quick calculation and discover that indeed they only get 24 days to pay, then we don't have to give them quite as much credit as they're demanding. Similarly, if we're buying from a customer and, and we look at, at his accounts receivable, days of receivables, that gives us an idea how many days he's giving everybody to pay him. And I don't think we ought to pay him any faster than that. So you see, knowing information about your customers, your competitors, and your suppliers gives you tactical information to use in bargaining. Even items like inventory. If we know what our suppliers' inventories are, and we see they're excessive compared to normal, the chances are that we can get a better price by offering it to take him off his hands, because most likely he's going to have to discount them to get rid of them anyway. On the other hand, if he's short of inventory, it may well be that he's planning to, to raise the price, and perhaps we ought to buy before that, or that we can't trust him as a just-in-time supplier because he doesn't have enough inventory on hand. So a buyer should be very interested in what the books of his, his vendors look like. So it's not just our own data we want to look at. We want to look at customers, suppliers, competitors, and ourselves to get ideas and to come up with what now is commonly called benchmarks, ideas of what we should be doing.
The next current liability that I'd like to talk about is the item of taxes payable. The government is willing to loan us money. Now, Ben Franklin would say they, they didn't give it to us in the first place, so how do they come off loaning it to us? The reality is, of course, we have to pay income taxes. And like individuals, at least in reasonably high tax brackets, you have to pay quarterly. And so at any given time, the company typically owes a quarter's worth of taxes, income taxes for the year, to the federal government. Now, that's at the end of the quarter we owe them a quarter. During the quarter, we owe them something less than that. So probably on average, we owe them 45 days worth of taxes. Of course, if we're smart, we'll owe them even more than that uh, by using some of the tricks we talked about earlier, that is accelerating depreciation and using LIFO inventories and things of this sort. But the reality is the government is a willing lender to us in the sense of extending credit. Now again, there's a cost. Obviously, if the government is not getting paid promptly with its taxes, given the size of the federal debt, they're borrowing more money and paying interest on it, which means probably our tax rates are higher because we're being given longer to pay. So there's a cost even to paying taxes late, but since everybody else pays it late, why shouldn't we? The items that we've been talking about so far are current liabilities. There's one other typical current liability that's not so obvious, and that's the current portion of the long-term debt. When companies issue long-term debt, it gradually matures and someday it comes due. In the year when it's due, it's a current liability because it's something we have to pay off this year. So at any given time, most firms have a current portion in their long-term debt. It's the part of the debt that matures this year and has to be paid this year. Now, don't get feeling too bad about having to pay it. Most companies never pay their debt. They simply issue more debt and use that money to pay off the debt they have. They call it rolling over. We'll get to that later. But still, the debt that's outstanding has to be repaid, and that's a current portion if it's due this year. These are the items of current liabilities, debt that has to be paid within one year. There are a couple others, notes payable. It's conceivable that we borrow short-term, perhaps from a bank, a 90-day loan, perhaps to finance inventories. That's a current liability also if the company has it on the books. A note can also be a long-term debt if it, if it extends more than a year. The next group of financing possibilities are what we call long-term debt. Companies issue bonds, typically, where they sign IOUs to banks to borrow money for long periods of time. Part of the problem, as I alluded to earlier, is that we have to match the duration of the loan to the asset that we're going to buy. It's perfectly possible to borrow money for 30 years to buy a house. You can't borrow money for 30 years to buy an automobile. An automobile in the bank's mind has perhaps a five-year life, so they'll loan you money for five years and allow you to pay it back during the five-year life. For a house, they might give you 30 years. And in each case, then, we have to match the assets that's to be purchased and its expected useful life to the length of the loan that we're trying to, to, to uh, convince the creditor to give us. Now, bonds have all sorts of interesting features to them. The most important one, along with all debt, is that they have to be repaid. And of course, they typically have to be repaid with interest. Most corporate bonds, the interest is paid semi-annually. Most bonds are called debentures. A debenture is simply a bond that has no particular asset pledged as collateral. You see, when you buy a house, you put a mortgage on it. The mortgage isn't the debt. The mortgage is, is a statement that says, if I renege on the debt, you can grab my house as security. It's collateral. 
You also, at the same time you buy a house, sign an IOU that says you owe the money. So there's actually two pieces of paper that attach to a debt. There's the IOU and some indenture, some contract that says what the terms are, including what collateral has to be pledged. Now, if collateral is pledged, the loan is considered a safer one. Because you see, if the company then goes bankrupt and you hold particular liens on collateral, you can seize that collateral in partial or full fulfillment of the debt. The people who only have general claims have to stand behind you with a lower priority, and they can only realize their repayments out of what's left. If you seize property to pay for debt, if there's more than enough money after you sell the property, you have to put it back in the pot for everybody else. If there's not enough, you join the line with everybody else as a general creditor. If there's no collateral on the debt, which is more typical, the debt is called a debenture. Debentures can take a number of forms, but typically they can be senior, they can be debentures, and they can be subordinated. And that's simply a statement of if we get into trouble, who gets paid off first? Senior debentures get paid before regular debentures, and regular debentures get paid before subordinated debentures. The more subordinated you are, the riskier that that is, because if the company goes under, there may not be anything left for people who hold subordinated debentures. How do you indicate you think it's riskier? You generally demand to get paid a higher interest rate on the debt. It's fashionable, because it always used to be the case, to call bonds coupon bonds. Attached to, in the old days, to a bond were a whole series of coupons numbered from one through one coupon less than the number of years that the bond was going to be outstanding. Actually, one coupon less than twice the number of the years. Let me explain that. If it was a 30-year bond and it was going to pay its coupons, its interest payments, twice a year, there would be 60 interest payments due during the 30 years the bond was outstanding. However, all they need are 29 coupons because when the 30th one comes due, the bond is also due, the corpus, the body. So you just turn in the bond to get it instead of the coupon. The coupons were actually banked just like a check. You deposited them, they cleared through the clearing system, and it was credited to your account. And each coupon was equal to half the interest payment due that year on that particular bond. So if a, if a bond had a 6% coupon, that made, means it pays 6% a year, it pays two 3% payments a year. If it's a $1,000 bond, that means twice a year it pays $30. And Mr. Gottrocks over here would clip his, his coupon and turn it into the bank on the due date, and $30 would be credited to his bond. And so we talk about rich people clipping their coupons. Now, the reality is that bonds don't even exist anymore for the most part. They're just on computer ledgers in your, at your brokerage firm, and the thing gets credited automatically. But the language still exists, and so the broker will always ask, tell you about the coupon that the bond is paying. We can make bonds appear less risky by a number of routes, and of course the reason we want them to look less risky is we can pay lower interest rates to borrow if we do. One thing we can do is, is to, instead of waiting 30 years to pay back the bond, we can set up a required sinking fund. Perhaps at the end of year 15, the company will agree as a part of the indenture, as a part of the contract, to begin paying off bonds a certain number each year. And since we're starting in year 15 and all of them are due by year 30, that would mean that each year, starting at year 15, we would re repay 1 15th of the debt. Which means on average, instead of borrowing for 30 years, we're really only borrowing for about 22 and a half years, half of that 15 year period when the sinking fund is generated, plus the 15 years before we paid off any sinking fund. Now, why is that less risky? Well, the sooner you get your money back, the less time I have to go bankrupt or to steal it.
Remember when we talked about receivables, we said that as they aged, they became less valuable because the probability of collecting went down. The same thing occurs with bonds. The longer you have to wait, the less valuable they are. Further, the longer you have to wait, the more inflation will eat up the value of the dollars you're going to get back. So in a lot of ways, if you can get them back sooner, that's great. Of course, if I asked you, is that a good result for the investors, the appropriate answer is always, it depends. If you're able to buy a bond with a very good coupon, let's suppose you could get one with a 10% coupon, because interest rates happen to be high this year, you might not want them paid back early, because at the time they're paying them back, you may have to reinvest the funds, and perhaps the best you could get is 6% on your money. So what you're really betting on if you get early repayment is that interest rates will be good enough to allow you to reinvest the funds at as good an interest rate as you're already earning. But it is protection against inflation, and it is protection against the company going belly up in the interim. And so a sinking fund generally makes the bond less risky, and therefore a lower coupon, a lower interest rate will attach to it. We can do other things to make bonds look attractive. We can make them convertible. You see, a bondholder is only entitled to those coupons, those interest payments, plus the principal at the end of the period. But suppose we said, as an additional privilege, at any given time, you can convert your bond into 20 shares of XYZ company. Can you see that if the XYZ shares do very well during the period you own the bond, 20 shares of XYZ may come to be worth a lot more than the bond's worth. So instead of waiting to collect the principal in the bond, will convert into shares and have more dollars worth of shares than the bond would have given us, then we can sell the shares for a profit or hold on to them. So effectively, we're getting our cake and eating it too. We're, we've got the senior standing of a creditor, but we've got the chance to ride the coattails of the company's performance if it does well and its shares values go up without taking the risk that shareholders have to take that the shares might also go down. Because you see, if the shares go down in value, we just won't convert we'll hold on and get our full face value back on the bond when it matures. So convertibility is an attractive feature. Uh, the structure of bond are about as many as people have imagination to create. Now everybody likes to talk about the stock market, but you understand that there's probably $10 worth of debt outstanding for every dollar's worth of equity in the United States. So the bond market is a much, much bigger market. It's also a market for speculators, because you can bet on interest rates. We'll talk about that at a later time, but I think you can see that if you own a bond with a high interest coupon attached to it, and interest rates drop, that bond becomes very attractive to people, because it has a high interest attached to it. So the bond will go up in value. So you may be able to sell the bond at a profit. Companies generally reserve the right to call their bonds, that is, to call them in earlier than the maturity date. So suppose we issued a 30-year bond and you bought it. They may have a call feature that says that any time after the 25th year, they can call that bond away from you. Usually they have to pay a slight premium. Instead of paying you 1,000, they might have to pay you 1,020 for the bond if they call it at year 25. Year 26, maybe they'd pay you 1,019 and so on down, so that in year 30, they would simply pay you the face value at 1,000. Now let's add one more complication. Creditors and brokers don't like to talk about bonds at face value. They like to talk about what percentage of their face value they're trading for. So if a bond is trading at 100, that means it's trading at 100% of its face value or $1,000. Just knock, add a zero to what they say it is, and that's the value. So if they say a bond's trading at 99, 
that means it's selling at 99% of its $1,000 face value or $990, put a zero on the end. If it's at 88, it's selling for 880. But that's to confuse the layman. We always talk about bonds selling at percentages of par. So a $100 bond is really a $1,000 bond. And typically, corporations issue their bonds in denominations of thousands of dollars. The federal government typically issues bonds in denominations of 5,000, but then again, they've got a much bigger debt. However, they have smaller bonds. Remember the, the little savings bonds that you and I could buy, the e-bonds. At one time, they issued them in denominations as small as $25. I, I don't know what they are now. Although I own one. Somebody gave it to me a long time ago. The advantage of getting paid semi-annually also has to be considered. Would you rather get $30 in, in, on one July and $30 on one January of each year, or would you rather get $30 just once a year? The answer should obviously be I'd rather get it twice a year, $60 once a year. I'd rather get $30 twice a year because the first $30 payment comes six months earlier. And money now is always worth more than money later because it can be reinvested to earn interest. So clearly paying semi-annually is more attractive than paying annually. In fact, a 6% bond that pays two coupons of 3% each, $30 each, is actually yielding a little bit better than 6% because of that early payment of the first $30 coupon. And uh, investors realize that, and that's sort of built in. In fact, instead of talking about the coupon, which is only used to identify the bond, the sixes of 05 or whenever they mature, generally brokers will talk about the yield to maturity. That is, what do you get by buying this bond right now at this price? And what you get is a series of interest payments and the full value of the bond at the end of maturity. If there's a call feature, they may also talk about the yield to call. That is, how much would you get if it got called early? Well, you get a little bit more, but then again, you don't get as many interest coupons because you're being paid earlier. The real problem with bonds and with any debt is that they do indeed have to be repaid. Failure to, to pay either the interest or the principal on a bond is a default on the part of the, of the issuer, and that's an act of bankruptcy. And if the creditors committee representing the group of bondholders that have been defaulted choose, they can throw the company into bankruptcy and cause its liquidation or at least its operation only in their interest until they get their money back or they can seize assets if they hold collateral, that is, they don't have debentures, but rather mortgage bonds, or the air airlines issue equipment trust certificates that are claims on particular airplanes. The railroads issue equipment trust certificates that allow you to seize a particular boxcar if you don't get paid. You have the right to seize it, which means that if a company chooses to finance itself with borrowed money, it's taking on risk, the risk of default. Everything's fine as long as we can pay the interest when it's due and so long as we can pay the principal, the corpus, the body of the bond, when it's due. Now, as I told you, that may not be too big an issue as long as we can issue new debt. Instead of paying it off, we use the money from the new debt to pay it off. We roll it over. But still, we have to be creditworthy enough to be able to sell new bonds to generate the funds to pay off the old bonds. Any failure to make these payments means a default and the risk of bankruptcy. And so we have that hanging over our heads if we borrow money. The alternative is to get somebody to give us their money permanently. And we call that equity. And the people who do that are called shareholders. Now, shareholders actually put their money into the company in three different ways. The first is in the form of buying the shares in the first place. 
Now, if we're issuing the shares new, that means we get the money directly. You understand that once the shares are sold to you guys, if you choose to sell them, you sell them to somebody else unless we're in the market to buy back our shares. But ordinarily, the shares that are trading in exchange are trades between individual shareholders with a broker serving as a middle person to, to, to uh, ease the trade. But on the first sale, the initial public offering, the money is coming to the company through the underwriter. We'll talk about underwriters a little later. Very often, the first stock is sold pretty cheap. And whatever value is put on it, either some people call it the par value or the initial issue value, that's called capital stock, and that's the first item in the equity account. How much was paid by shareholders to buy stock in the first place? Now, companies often, often if they're growing, make additional issues later, hopefully at higher prices, because by then the shares have gone up in value. If they make an additional issue of shares, Whatever the new shareholders pay for those, those new shares, the part that's the same as the original stock is entered into the capital stock account, and everything else is called paid-in surplus. So suppose the first issue I made was at $10 a share. But now we've grown, and our stock is selling at $30 a share. If we sell someone an additional share at $30, $10 is entered into the capital stock account, and the other $20 is entered into the paid-in surplus account. For well-established companies with long histories, the paid-in surplus account may be much, much larger than the capital stock account because there's no limit to how far the shares could have gone up, yet the capital stock account is always at that par value back at $10. But neither of these is really the biggest investment shareholders make. The biggest investment is in the form of retained earnings. The shareholders, in their wisdom, elect a board of directors. Typically on staggered terms of three years, I serve on a number of boards, and so you're elected for three years to serve as a director, and each year, like the Senate, one-third of the, of the board comes up. Well, the Senate's every two years. The directors, in their infinite wisdom, decide what to do with the earnings of the company each year. And basically, there are things, three things they could do other than outright steal them. A, they could pay them out in dividends. B, they could retain them in the business to cause the business to grow, hopefully. No guarantee that retaining will cause the business to grow. Or C, they could use the money to buy in additional shares from the company that are already issued from the public. Now, the advantage of the last one you see is if the, if the company is in the market buying in its shares, that helps support the price of the shares out there because there's a demand for the stock. The more demand, the higher the price. And all your shareholders should appreciate it when we buy in shares because we're probably boosting the value of the shares still outstanding. Further. If I buy in all the shares but yours, you own the company. So I'm reducing the amount of dilution that you have to deal with as a shareholder by buying in those other guys and leaving you as the sole shareholder, or at least the principal shareholder. And we'll discover there's some real advantages to being the major or principal shareholder. Basically, it's that you elect the board of directors and they do what you want them to do, or you can be a director if you want to. Now, the directors are supposed to be independent characters. They're not supposed to be slaves of the company. Further, they're supposed to behave as prudent men, even if they're women. The prudent man law was written in Massachusetts by a man named George Putnam many years ago, and basically what it argues is that a prudent man handles, or a fiduciary, someone who handles money for other people or decides what to do with other people's money, including your money as shareholders, should behave prudently. That is, he should use the funds as carefully as he would use his own. 
And that's the standard that fiduciaries like investment uh, managers in mutual funds, directors of companies, uh, trust officers in banks are held to. They must invest funds in a way that they would invest them themselves if it was their own money. So the directors are expected to be prudent men. And they're supposed to decide what to do with the, with the excess profits each year. Well, no profit is ever excess, according to the directors. But the three choices are pay a dividend, reinvest in the business, or buy in shares. There is one other kind of share that we could have outstanding, and that's called a preferred share. The British call them preference shares. And incidentally, all of these items we call equity. Another word for it is net worth. You'll see that on, on balance sheets occasionally, too. The British particularly like the term net worth. The preference or preferred shares are entitled to a fixed dividend, but that's all they're entitled to. And the entitlement doesn't extend to the idea that we owe them the dividend. It only extends to the argument that until they get their dividend, we can't do anything for the common shareholders, the ordinary shareholders, as the British would call them. Now, this means that the company earns money. Before it could pay any dividends to its common shareholders, it must pay the dividend that was indicated on the preferred share. Some preferred shares have cumulative features. That is, if we fail to pay one year, before we can ever pay a common dividend again, we have to pay all the arrearages, that is, all the dividends that we haven't paid. Most preferreds are not cumulative, though, which means all we owe, if you call it owing, is the dividend this year before we pay anything to the common. It's not a default not to pay the preferred dividend because we don't owe it to them. Our only obligation is to pay it if we have the money to pay it with. Now, if we have the money and don't pay it, they may well sue us because we, we really should pay them if we can. But the real leverage they have is you can't do anything for the common shareholders. You can't buy in stock and you can't pay dividends until you pay the preferreds their dividend. But you see, they don't really get to participate in the growth of the company because their dividend is fixed. Where you common shareholders get to participate in growth because if the company gets bigger and earns more money, it can pay bigger dividends. So the value of your shares should go up over time because of the growth of the business. The value of preferred shares generally doesn't. They behave much more like, like uh, bonds in that they become more or less valuable depending on what alternative investments are available to people who want to put their money at lesser risk. The preferred stock has a riskier position in the company than a bond because it doesn't have a default claim the way a bond does if the company doesn't pay. So if the company goes under, the bondholders get paid first. If there's anything left, the preferred shareholders get paid next. And if there's anything left, that's what you guys get as common shareholders. The structure of the right-hand side of the balance sheet that we've been discussing is very important. How much debt and how much equity should we use? Clearly, the more debt we use, the riskier our situation is because the more we have to worry about our ability to pay all the interest and the possibility of default if we don't pay the principal as it comes to. Further, from the creditor's viewpoint, the more debt and the less equity, the bigger the risk they're taking. At the extreme, if we had only one dollar of equity and a billion dollars worth of debt, really all the risks are being taken by the bondholders. And they would indicate that they realize that's risky by demanding much higher returns because really they're taking the risk that a shareholder would normally take. Different businesses maintain different debt to equity ratios, principally based on how risky the creditors see the business as being. For example, 
utilities are able to borrow a great deal of money compared to the equity they put up because they've got a pretty good thing going. They've got an absolute monopoly on providing electricity in Fairfax County. It's a necessity. People are going to have to pay for it. The rate makers are going to set a rate that allows them to earn enough of a return to pay the interest on the bonds. So the bondholders see utility bonds as relatively safe and they let utilities borrow a big proportion of their capital. On the other hand, uh, if you were producing uh, high-style women's garments and betting your company four times a year on what the right color and white shirt length will be, I think you could see creditors would see that as pretty risky and would demand that you use a lot of equity in the business and not much debt. An important thing to remember is, on the balance sheet, is that everything on the left-hand side, and incidentally it might be on the top because the British sometimes put the assets on the top and the, and the liabilities and, and equity on the bottom, but on the left-hand side are the assets. Those are things you can touch, feel, smell, kick, sell, and do things to. The right-hand side of the balance sheet is just history. There's nothing over there that you can touch, feel, or do a darn thing to. It's simply a list of where the money came from that got invested over on the left-hand side of the balance sheet in the form of assets. So we don't repay debt out of retained earnings. Retained earnings in the equity statement is simply a statement that we have kept some money in the business that was earned in previous years and it's either in cash or maybe it's invested in plant equipment or maybe it's invested in inventories but it's damn well on the left hand side not the right hand side of the balance sheet so remember you can't spend retained earnings okay and you can't spend debt the entry that's made on the balance sheet when you issue debt is you increase the item of long-term debt by the amount you borrowed and you increase the cash account by the amount of cash you got by selling those bonds. Then you invest the cash in other assets or do with it whatever you plan to do. And as I said, the trick is to keep the two things balanced and also to keep the debt and equity balanced. I didn't mention the deferred tax item this time, but let's get back to it since Ben Franklin is so much in favor. Remember I told you during the first session that we can generate a deferred tax item by being clever and keeping more than one set of books. Basically, if we use a LIFO and FIFO inventory systems, LIFO for tax accounting and FIFO first in, first out for financial reporting, that will result in deferred taxes. Also, if we use accelerated depreciation for taxes and, and straight line depreciation for uh, financial reporting, again, we can generate a deferred tax. The reason we have deferred tax is that remember when we played those games all we were doing was delaying when the tax would get paid. When we accelerated depreciation we said we charged a lot of depreciation off this year but that was at the cost of not being able to charge much in future years. That means we've brought down income this year by charging off a lot of depreciation but it's at the expense of having to report a lot of income in later years. We've deferred the tax that we have to pay to a later year. The advantage, the government doesn't charge us anything for deferred taxes. Generally speaking, the older a company is, the longer it's been around, the longer it's had a chance to, to generate a deferred tax item. And so if you see a big item of deferred taxes, you're probably looking at a pretty mature company. Another measure of the company's maturity is how much there is in the, in the retained earnings account. Clearly, you can't have much in the retained earnings account if you haven't had any earnings yet. So a new young company would have no retained earnings. In fact, if it's been losing money, it might actually have negative retained earnings. 
But as it begins to generate profits and retain them in the business over the years, that retained earnings account becomes a very big item in the equity account. And that's sort of a measure of how long the company's been around or how successful it's been. The one other place in the balance sheet you can get an idea of the age of a company is by looking at its plant and equipment item. The net item is reported on the balance sheet, but back in the footnotes, they'll tell you how much depreciation they've accumulated. Some companies actually report the whole thing. They'll list gross plant and equipment minus accumulated depreciation, and then they'll list net plant and equipment. But if you can get to the item of accumulated depreciation and compare that to the total value of the assets, that tells you sort of how long the asset's been lying around being depreciated. So that's another measure of how old the company is. All three of these then sort of tell you whether the company's a Johnny-come-lately or a new guy. Well, what's the advantage of using equity? The principal one is that as opposed to debt, it means that we don't have to repay it. We don't owe the shareholders anything but our best efforts as prudent men. Sooner or later, we're going to change that debt, and women, but the law is still called on the books the prudent man law. The only thing we owe them is to our best efforts. Best efforts to do what? Well, it could be to make the company grow. It could be to increase dividends. That may actually be related, because if the company grows, it may generate more profits and be able to pay more dividends. It could be simply to convince the world that for some reason or another we're a very successful business and everybody wants to own our shares. And if everybody wants to own them, guess what's going to happen to the value of the shares? And if the value of the shares go up, I doubt if I'll get any complaints from you shareholders about what else I'm doing for you. After all, the real advantage in, in seeing the value of your shares go up is that that's a way of making a profit that you don't have to pay any taxes on until you sell the shares. If I pay you a dividend, that dividend is instantly taxable at the next reporting period. Further, if you hold on to your shares long enough, you can leave them to your son or daughter when you die, and, and then they don't never pay the capital gain because they inherit them at the cost basis from the day they inherit them. We'll get into that later. Probably a good idea to hold on to stock if it keeps growing up. So I can probably make you pretty happy by making this company grow. However, if you ask what is the alternatives, that is, which would you prefer, growth or dividends, the answer again is it depends. Because can you see, if I pay a dividend, then I'm not retaining earnings in the business to grow on. If I retain earnings in the business to grow on, then I'm not paying a dividend. And so we have to satisfy somebody, and I know who will satisfy. We'll satisfy Got Rocksbach here, our biggest shareholder, because what he wants is what matters since he elects the board of directors. And the board of directors decides what will be accomplished. So the trade-off that we're dealing with will be whether to retain earnings in the business or whether to pay them out as we generate profits most importantly, in what proportions. Part of the problem with paying a dividend is the world hates you if you ever cut it. And the way they show you how much they hate you is the price of your shares falls on its face. So if, a, if the board of directors has to admit that things are so bad that we're going to cut the dividend, that announcement is usually enough to knock substantial part of the value out of the stock. So your shareholders will be unhappy not only because your dividends will be cut, but because you just saw 40% of the value of your shares fall apart. That's generally when presidents get replaced and, and questions are asked in great seriousness about what's going on. So cutting the dividend is the signal you never want to give. Okay, the lessons we've learned, I hope in this, in this session, are first, that we have to match the sources of funds against the uses we're going to put them to. The life of the asset should suggest how long we're going to have to use the money. 
Long-term assets will either use long-term debt or equity to fund them. Short-term assets could typically be financed with short-term liabilities or current liabilities. The ratio of debt and equity is an important feature in our capital structure because it affects how much we're going to have to pay for the use of money. Creditors don't want to take any more risk than necessary. They indicate they're unhappy with the risk by either saying no to the loan or charging more interest. The advantage of using equity is that we don't owe anybody anything except our best efforts. But then again, then we have to listen to all your complaints if we don't do a good job. Now in the next session, we're going to take a look at maybe the most important statement the company issues, and that is whether it made any money, the income statement.